You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives, the ups, the downs, the job changes, all of it, because I believe that our feelings of being enough, successful, fulfilled, worthy, enough are not out there somewhere. Once I do this, have this, be it, then I will feel it. Nope. It's something that we got to claim for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. On today's episode, I have Titilayo Tunubu Ali, and I really, really loved talking to her. She is an attorney, an education advocate, a twin mom, and the founder of Own Your Expertise, which I love. I love how she got to creating this work and the work you got to do to be able to own your own expertise. So let's get into her journey. All right. So let's get into, I usually like to start with what was just life growing up like for you? And especially I feel like in teenage years, because those can feel like, especially for me, I mean, just trying to figure out who you are in the world, but also it's like blending in and getting all of the expectations of the world. And you're supposed to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. (laughs) So like, well, yeah, growing up and like, what were you feeling like in the teenage years? Yeah, so I consider myself really blessed to have grown up in Atlanta, Georgia, where I am now. We landed back here after a lot of living across the country. <laughs> um, born and raised in Atlanta, grew up here, of course, you know, home of the civil rights movement. All honor to John Lewis our new ancestor at the time of this recording. So I grew up in Atlanta, Black woman in Atlanta. Father is Nigerian, mother is African-American, grew up in a small town in South Carolina. So they met in grad school at Clemson and then they moved to Atlanta because at the time, my dad, who had a master's in engineering and my mom who had her PhD, my dad could only find a job in South Carolina flipping pizza. And so... We moved to Atlanta. And I'm sure there was, I need to ask them more about like, tell me what the job search looked like. Cause like, I know, I mean, I know racism was a factor. I don't, I just want the story. Yeah. Um, so, so I have to dig deeper into that. So they moved to Atlanta and we grew up, grew up here. I've always had a black mayor. My mother herself was always in politics. I've always seen incredibly like, in, like embodied, you know, self-possessed women like me doing things um, and just have always had a really warm and vigorous community and vigorous, I guess, enriching (laughs) community. Right. And my mother was also a professor at Spelman college, which is a women's college for black women here in Atlanta. Um, The best college I must say. (laughs) Yeah. Just this week, uh, the week that we're talking, I had Jody Patterson um, on who went to Spelman and yeah, she couldn't say enough good things about her experience there. Yeah. And for those who don't know, it's literally, well, some who might not know, might know of the TV show, A Different World. Right. I forgot that that was like, because back then also, I think when I was watching that show, I didn't even... 
I was just like, okay, whatever. Like I didn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was a big thing to me also because I wasn't even in like ages of college. I was just like, okay, great. So they're all at college and, you know, like. So <laughs> like I grew up on Spelman's campus. My mom being an econ professor, I was literally like in the back of her classroom while she was teaching after school, doing my homework. I went to nursery school at Spelman. So like, Wow. The magic was like what I grew up in. And so I just really feel fortunate to have had that experience. And I think a lot of that has shaped just this uh, perspective that I've had where I won't say it's been like limitless or fearless, but it's just been like worst case scenario, you have community, you have family and like reaching out and going for things is just what we do to try you know? And so I'm also like the only daughter. I have three brothers. Uh, so that was an interesting <laughs> dynamic growing up, mostly because of my dad, who I think was the first like womanist I ever knew. My dad was like, I never knew until I'm 30, I'll be 39 in a couple weeks. So a couple of months ago, I called my dad up on the way home from work because I'd had an interesting conversation with someone who said that they were really clear when they were growing up that as the only, he's the only boy and he had three sisters and there were things he could do. And there were things his sisters just like could not do. And he grew up in like Mississippi. So we just had a really interesting conversation about that. And he's like a generation older than I am. And so I just call my dad and see what's what, (laughs) because that just was not a thing for me. And he said, yeah, my dad is very, I wouldn't say, religious but has always had a very deep like spiritual sense and he said you know like everyone's created in the image of God like why would I expect anything less of you uh than your brothers and so it was just like a matter of fact way he said it and that's kind of how I grew up like with the sense of like we don't have to deal with all those issues we're kind of in a bubble where you know going after things and striving and giving back to community and just really being embedded in community is just what we do here. And, and he was always really supportive of my mother's goals and career, you know? So it was just, um, I don't know. I'm glad you asked the question because I've been reflecting on it more just as I've had my own children. And I think about the kind of boys we're raising and, you know, I'm like, I get so happy because you never know like who your spouse, at least I didn't know who my spouse was going to be <laughs> as a parent. I didn't even know what kind of parent I was going to be. Uh, yeah, I think we can think we know what kind of parents we're going to be but until we have those children. <laughs> I know. And I wasn't one of those people who ever thought about being a mom or getting married for that matter. I mean, I just kind of felt it might happen, but I wasn't like worried about it or thinking about it. And so this has all been kind of a delightful surprise to see how it's turned out. But like, my husband is constantly like, no, the prince is not saving the princess. She's a warrior too. And like, yes, like she's, she can ride, you can play with this doll and she can ride her motorcycle. And like, it's kind of, it's been really interesting to see the full range of humanity that at least my husband and I are trying to just allow our boys to accept, you know, and, you know, have a, have a sense of their personhood that's beyond 
some of the images that they may have seen. And really, like, not even just images they have seen, but for Black boys, there's just a lot of images that aren't out there. You know, like, we want them to have room to be, like, a skateboarding, biker, swimmer, nerd, jock, <laughs> like, fashion, you know, guru, like, whatever. Like, we just want them to have, be able to have the full range of things. And I feel like, at least as a Black woman growing up in Atlanta, I had access to so many images. There really was like no kind, no way of being that I didn't see. And I want the same for them too. So long way of being, it was a lot. <laughs> Did you like, yeah, since you're saying you've been reflecting a lot now, like, do you feel like have there been moments in your life where you've sort of noticed like, oh, right. Like, not everyone grew up like me or I might think about things differently because of this. Cause I think sometimes we don't, we, I mean, most of the times we don't, you know, like we don't realize that stuff until we're older. Like, Oh, right. This upbringing or this, that happened to me or this, Mm -hmm. whatever has changed a lot of how I approach life. But, and it's easy to think like everybody thinks like me or like everybody sees this. Right. And you probably see things a unique way based on how you were brought up. Do you like remember any ahas of like, oh. Yeah. Two things come to me as like things that I am just supremely grateful for now. So the sense that I can always come home is just like when I look back on my life, knowing that that was always possible, I can just see the extreme amount of comfort and privilege in that. Like that there's a place where I can always come and I have home. And I never did though. Like I left, I was done with Atlanta after college. I was like, hey, yo, and just left, lived in Charlotte then lived in DC, Nashville, New York, Berkeley, like lived all over. But I realized that I think that that's allowed me to reach for things a little easier, maybe, Um, maybe not easier, but um, with some assurance that if this doesn't work out, there's a place. I try, I wish that there was more community, you know, even if it's not the, your original family or it's just some other community, but I think that just as humans, we need some sense of like a place where we can come home after, yeah. like, after we reach out. So I just really appreciate that my family was that kind of family. My parents were that kind of, those kinds of parents. And in a lot of ways, Atlanta is just that kind of place. When we moved back here three years ago, I ran into people like parents of friends I hadn't seen in 20 years. And they were just like, we just picked up where we left off. You know, it's just very much like, and most of those people are like elders. And so there's this real, one of the things I appreciate that I do notice that sometimes isn't the case with others is this like intergenerational relationships and the amount of wisdom that can be gained from just like shutting up <laughs> and just sitting and listening and hearing, you know, like asking questions, asking advice. Yesterday, my husband asked my mother what she would do if she just could like start all over again, right? And um, she shared really personally, like what she would do. And I was just reflecting on how honored I am to have that wisdom and to be able to learn from people who just lived a life, you know? So I really appreciate that sense of home and that wisdom. 
I've also always had a sense of myself being both in this context, but like so much more than this context, meaning the United States of America 2020 as a like black woman, (laughs) right? So there's a lot that comes with that for a lot of people. But as someone who is both Nigerian and has like a very strong connection to my like homeland on my Nigerian side and also African-American, I've always just like seen myself both within this context and outside of it. And so I was grateful that I went to schools where there wasn't, there was some whitewashing of history, but I always had my parents to come home to, to say like, this is, (laughs) this is the real deal. And we had like walls and walls of books and my mom being a professor, of course, was just like, you know, yeah, we wow. got the real deal. My mama actually pioneered this new class at Spelman. It was called African Diaspora in the World. She and a couple of other professors were noticing that many students were coming. This is not unique to Spelman. This is probably every college university. We're coming to college with like no sense of history beyond Black people in this particular country in a particular moment post-slavery. Like no understanding of the African diaspora and the hit the real history and so she and her colleagues created that course so like those books were on my shelf in high school in middle school and I'm like you know so having that clear sense of self I just think that nothing can really take that away from you and it's something that many dominant cultures already have because the systems are already structured for white men quite frankly and then white people generally. So it's not even something that you notice as much, but when you don't have it, it can be obvious when you're like, wait a minute, that's not the whole, <laughs> that's not the whole story. That's not the full picture. This isn't the full range of possibilities for me. So like having, I've noticed that not everybody has had that. And when you don't have that, you can, um, there's this notion of like the danger of a single story. And not really being able to see yourself sort of outside of whatever context is presented to you. So I've really, I've really appreciated both of those aspects. Yeah. So let's get into, did you end up going to Spelman then? Yeah. After (laughs) you asked about early years, you know, the middle school years happened. I was like, I'm not going to Spelman. I hate Spelman. I'm going anywhere with Spelman. It was like, you know. Right. Well, no, I can get that it could either be, oh, I absolutely want to go to one or like, that's the last place I'm going to go. Like the natural like rebellion of what you know, or like what your parents want from you. Or I don't know what was wrong with me. My mom had gotten me like, you know, the Spelman book bags and t-shirts. Like I was like, she didn't even go to Spelman. It was, yeah. And you're the only girl, of right. course. Like, <laughs> But although she went to Howard, so it was another historically black college university, but she was Anyway, she's very determined. I was very rebellious. Then I went to a summer program where we actually stayed on campus. We like did the whole thing. I felt grown and independent and I just fell in love. And then I just went to the other side and said, I'm only applying to Spelman. At which point my mom was like, wait, like that's not how we do it. <laughs> you have a range of schools. I was like, nope, I've decided this is it. Well, thankfully it worked out. <laughs> so did you only ad- apply to Spelman? Good for you. I only applied to the one college I wanted to go to. <laughs> and I also have to say, this is also going back to like how we grew up. So even though like Atlanta, you know, well, the demographic touched this, it's not majority 
African-American anymore. It's kind of like uh, not as much. Um, but in my high school, my high school was predominantly white. And I also like grew up with a lot of, there was this time in history in the Atlanta public school system where there was a magnet program and you were seeing a lot of students having access to schools in like the wealthier neighborhoods, north side of Atlanta. I went to elementary school on the north side. I went to middle school on the north side. And there was this really like radical group of white parents in Buckhead who were like, look, like this is Atlanta. We're the home of the civil rights movement. Like, let's do this and let's actually be anti-racist. And so like, I also grew up with like a lot of actively anti-racist white people. <laughs> Which is probably not. And their parents, is unique. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is unique. And like my English professor, yeah, when you started telling me that story and you said Buckhead and white people, I wasn't thinking that's the way I was going to go. <laughs> it was, it, that's not, you didn't think I was going to go. No, they were like, there's like whole dissertations written about this period in like the education policy like sector in, in Atlanta. And I had this really great English teacher, Mr. Irwin, who was like, when I was in my rebellious phase, he was like, you have to go to spell like. He was, he was fabulous, like head of the drama department. Like he looked like a Ken doll, honestly. But like, like one of my like advocates for going to Spelman was this like wonderful, beautiful white man. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I just had a different upbringing where I both felt like completely grounded in my identity. I had a sense of like a really diverse community and people gathering around things other than race and gathering around like what's good and what's just like right but also seeing race and not like saying I don't see color (laughs) you know it was like yeah we see color we see problems we address them and I just feel really grateful for that to have been the dominant way that I grew up and so to now see like the conversation shifting more globally it just feels really good it just feels really good Sure. Yes. And also I'm guessing long overdue because I'm just, especially as a white person growing up in <laughs> predominantly white <laughs> world. And it's like, yeah, like, yeah, you guys talking talking about all the books and, you know, like at the black college having that school, like in this whole awakening, I have been like, why was there like a class? I was, was there like, was every, were, were the black <laughs> communities going to like an extra class on the weekends, like CCD class, like it's for Catholic, you know, who don't go to Catholic school. So then they would learn on the weekends. I was like, were these, were these classes being held? And we didn't know about it. Cause I was like, why does that, why? Like, of course, you know, you're educating yourself on that. But I was just like, I mean, I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I was just like, how, what, why, I was just reading these things and believing them and my parents and nobody questions it. And, mm-hmm. and I was never even thought, like, of course I knew racism existed, but not, yeah, not moved to do, like, it seemed like, yep, so that, and we did that and that was good and it was fixed and yeah. hello slaves. Or it's like, right. it's like, no mention of, and maybe we'll get into this later, so. I studied education policy. I have a master's in ed policy. And I... Is that what you studied? That's what I was going to ask, wanted to get into next. Is like, yeah, what did you think you wanted to do for a living and study there? Yeah. So I studied English at Spelman. Because I did that summer program, I actually finished early because I had some extra credit. But I wanted to graduate with my class. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just kind of hung out. I took some art classes. 
And I also started working and doing some consulting in college. Um, But I always knew that I ultimately wanted to go to law school, which I did. And I was really interested in education and the well-being of children. So I've always been, I've always been a caregiving type. I don't know, always like the one babysitting the kids, the big sister, the, you know, nanny, like friends, you know, like all the things, right? And also a Salmon woman, Marion Wright Edelman, who was the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. She was also a lawyer. Learned about her in college and just decided I wanted to be her, but didn't have a clear path to how to get there. And writing was just, and communicating was just something that always really drew me. And I thought that um, somehow I thought that no matter what I do, it'll be important to know how to write. And it turned out <laughs> that, you know, 17-year-old T.T. Lyle was kind of right about that. But I honestly just did what I love to do. I wrote like proposals for why we should build a pool in the backyard when I was like nine. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> but like doing research, writing things and. That's yeah, that's pretty unique for a nine year old to not just say, let's get a come on, uh, nagging them constantly. <laughs> you wrote the proposal. You know, I was like, I think I'll write a proposal. My parents still have it. I kind of always knew what I liked, um, but wasn't sure how it would turn out and ended up going to graduate school and studying education policy and and then ultimately went to law school um, because there was a lot of intersections with like how you have to sue people to get them to do right. <laughs> so law school was in many ways an extension of what you wanted to do mm-hmm. to make the change with that. It mm-hmm. wasn't like you want to go in a courtroom and litigate necessarily no no although I ended up doing litigation because the way the legal career works is kind of it's kind of shitty actually so most people who go into law school with a social justice interest now I was grateful I went to Berkeley Berkeley is like social justice world and the law school is really kind of set up for you to have opportunities in social justice but a lot of social justice positions so keeping institutional racism in mind um, are not as well paying as litigation positions. And many of the students who want to go into those fields and who most connect to the work that is being, is being done also need to make more headway in, toward, in terms of building wealth because of <laughs> systemic racism. And so the, the trade-offs are different. So the people that are most empowered to do this work sometimes are led out of it because they need to provide make more income to take care of themselves and their families. So then they don't do the work that they're most called to. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And you know, there are programs that are set up like, you know, to help with loan repayment and all that, but law school is expensive, you know? And so like, it's like, do I either do this social justice thing or do I go to a firm for a couple of years and do that and then return that, which is what I ended up doing. So I went to a firm and worked like a large law firm doing labor and employment work, litigating discrimination cases. And I was on like the bad side, I guess you would say. So I I worked for large law firms that were defending companies who had, you know, discrimination lawsuits, which for me, I thought was brilliant because like how better to learn like the ins and outs of defeating discrimination cases 
by being online. Wow. So you were working on the law teams defending corporations who are getting sued for people mm-hmm. saying that like that. For rape, gender. For like, I wasn't fired or hired or I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. That I mean that had to have a lot of mixed emotions though, because I see your boy of like, wow, I'm really in your learning. But I mean, especially like, what did people say to you? I make up a lot of people who are like, what are you doing? How are you, why are you defending that? Like, right? That had to be a lot. Were people I make up people would be like, what are you doing? No, it's funny. Like, well, one, like it happened the path to law firm life happens so often that like no one even questions it. It's and it's kind of ridiculous. You leave law school, you know nothing, and you get paid like a ridiculous amount of money like to just learn, which is kind of cool. And to not do that, I mean, and people make all kinds of decisions about whether or not they will or not. But it's funny because no one, it's so common, even when people have an interest in social justice to like take that route. And people don't even question that. Also like- Well, I mean the questioning taking, like defending the corporations. Oh, you mean like how, you know, when, I mean, did people like your friends, you know, like, oh, okay, great. You're going to be a lawyer. Good for you. But then wait, you're defending the corporations. Like, did you get any pushback from that? Or you were just like, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't hear any. I I just have like some dope friends because like no one would come to me with that shit. (laughs) Well, I think if you talk, like, yeah, if you were like, oh, well, just explained, well, this is why I find it to be valuable, like, whatever. But yeah, I make up as soon as somebody would learn that. But yeah, I might. Yeah. And it's funny, like, there was also the thing I really loved about it. And I enjoyed it. It wasn't even just like this, like, nefarious thing, like, let me learn the other side. I actually did enjoy it because in practice, what happens is, you know, company will get sued, they'll hire the big law firm to defend them. And it usually settles before it goes to court. Like 2% of cases actually go to trial. Right. I actually was on a case which was super rare that was going to trial, but it's really rare. And what happens in between the lawsuit and the settlement is really like a lot of negotiation, a lot of sitting down with the companies and saying, all right, like these are the policies you need to have in place to make this right. (laughs) And to not get sued again, you know, like this is the kind of, got it training you need to do right so it's like so you are kind of like even though you're def- on the defenses of the company you are being like well yes you know you did you did not handle this correctly this is what you need to be doing what do you think about this and you're going to need to pay this person <laughs> this much like so even though you were on the defense you were educating making change yeah helping to right a wrong somehow exactly exactly and of course got like it because we're hired by the client, it's always in the best interest of the client. But a lot of times in business, what's in the client's best interest is in the, you know, employee's best interest. Like to really, because you have to deal with the optics of these cases and like some of them would make the news and, you know, they have to think about the exposure of their business. And so I actually was surprised at how much of, and that was my particular practice area. Now, there were people who were in other practice areas, like, I I don't know how to do it. (laughs) But for me, doing employment law was a a way to really make an impact in how the workplace was working or not working for people. And it actually helped our clients by doing that too yeah. prevented, you know future exposure with cases and I've always been fascinated with like the 
the workplace as the site of a lot of things. <laughs> like it's um it's a it's a place where a lot of things can play out. We spend a lot of our time there. Obviously in these moments the workplace is different, but I've always been fascinated about how like all of the isms, right? Racism, sexism, like all of the things play out in the workplace and how people develop their sense of personhood and identity based on what they're experiencing in the workplace. And some of that uh, led to why I created Own Your Expertise. Um, we can talk about that later, but it's a, it's so much happens at work. So much. <laughs> well, yeah, and that is like the majority of like, yeah, most of the time people are spending more time with the coworkers than with their families and friends for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what, yeah. So what did you do after like, or what made you leave then doing that? And what did you go to next? Did you go to what you're doing now or what was your next step? Yeah. So let's see. This all sounds super linear as I describe it, but know this, it was not. <laughs> yeah. She's moving her hand in a like what back and forth way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, after college graduated, I knew like part of like going to Spelman and being incredibly like confident, had knowing that there was that sense of home. I was like, I can do this. I can set out on my own and start my own consulting firm. Why not? I know how to write. And also consulting is such a confusing word to me. <laughs> like, you know, like it can seem like very elusive. Yeah. What, so especially coming out of college, like what was your like was it still this is the same idea of what you wanted to consult on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is funny because people use consulting in many different ways. Like, what are you even doing? Yeah, I'm like, let me just use that word. Yes, like you can also hire me consult. <laughs> right. And I probably, I'm trying to think, did I know what I was talking about back then? I don't know. You never know. I probably didn't. Um, but I actually was consulting. So I had clients who at the time were mostly nonprofits, a few like nonprofits and like one or two churches, entrepreneurs, and a couple of like government agencies. But I was a consulting writer for them and I would ghostwrite things. I would help get their work into the media. So I did media relations and PR for them. I would write reports and case studies and like all the things. I was using my English background and I had started working in college a little bit. So I wasn't brand new. I mean, I guess I'd have like a year under my belt, but I, yeah. So I was, I was a kind of consultant and it's funny. I have a quiz that people can take and we can talk about that later where you can understand like what's your consulting style because they're really really three main kinds of consulting that I've come to realize. I'm not going to spoil it because you need to take the quiz. But, but one of them is like, you're the interim solution for people. So that means they can't or don't want to hire someone for that job. And so you're, you're the fill-in for that time. Being. And that is actually something that we're seeing more of, you know, at the time of this recording, we're in the middle of COVID-19. I watch workforce data very closely and there's an interesting thing happening where people are experiencing working from home, getting like it's difficult, but also like, yeah, we're not going back to that <laughs> thing we were doing. Like, I know this is rough, but like, I also know that the way we were working was not it. 
Especially like, okay, I got to commute in traffic for an hour to sit here and we're like doing, yeah, it's like, why it's like, this isn't enjoyable at home, but also no. Yeah. Right. Right. So people are kind of like craving something else. At the same time, companies are dealing with, you know, continuing to have to pay $30,000 a month for office space that they're not using, really knowing like the economy, economics of things like wages is how you cut things to make a profit. And so you're seeing a lot of layoffs, reductions in force, and you're also seeing a lot of companies trading out their full-time workers for consultants. And so those people would be like what I was when I was just starting out, which is an independent consultant who comes in for a set period of time for a particular project. And they're not my only client. I have other ones and I do this thing for them. So it might mean they just created this product and they need to develop a communications plan around it. I come in for six months and I do that for them. And then I go on my merry way. So that's like one way of consulting. And that's what I did when I just started out. So in that way, like, is it the same or different than like, like hiring freelance? Like what would be the difference or is that? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's just semantics. Like you can be a freelance consultant. You know, I think freelance is more like a, Cause when, well, when I think of freelance, I mean like I'm hot, like, Oh, like me, for instance, like I need to hire a freelance designer. I don't need them on all the time, but right now, or like right now I need extra help. So I'm going to hire somebody part time. And it's like without like a contract, whatever. When I hear the term consultant, I feel like it means like we're consulting. We're going to talk about some here to like talk you through things or give you my expertise on something, which I guess it is. You're hiring them for their expertise, Mm -hmm. but yeah, like, and I keep thinking it's like a convert, like yeah, <laughs> different. And I'm just going to spoil it and tell you <laughs> all the ways that people can still take the quiz. Still take the quiz. <laughs> yeah. So that's one, right? Like you're actually a replacement for what would have been a full-time worker. Um, I think, and yes, embedded in, at least in my sense of, I don't know, like maybe people have different definitions, but when you think about like the large consulting firms and when you think about sort of what the industry of consulting looks like. So like McKinsey's is a large consulting firm. Bain & Company is a large consulting firm where they have consultants who, Accenture is another one, who go into companies and do, like they have like really deep, usually subject matter expertise or like technical expertise in a particular thing. And you're right, it isn't just a matter of like doing a thing. So like, I I don't do what I just talked about that I did in my early career, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, now it's also, it's more about like the strategy and I can help you lay out what you need to do. And to the extent that I need to, you know, step in and help you get it started. Consultants are, they don't just have the technical expertise. There's usually some element of strategy where they don't have to be the one doing it themselves. So one way you can show up just to do it Another way is to like, you're a strategist. I think, and that's this where I think that's probably where I was more thinking. Cause like, the, 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 like consultant seems like it's like an inter, like, okay, we're going to work together to get to this thing that you want, but you don't know clearly what it is or find the best way for it. So like, yeah, but I was thinking like, they just like had ideas and not also were like doing the thing. I don't know. Yeah. No, some just have ideas and that's where consultants get a bad rap because a lot of times companies will pay like, tons of money for consultants with nothing to show for. And I don't think that's necessarily, 
I think that there is value in strategy and ideas and helping people get clarity and think through. I think that, yeah, I think there really is value. <laughs> right. There's real value. In that. You know, I think um, with many, with many careers, you know, you have, some, you have some bad apples. It's just, is what it is. For sure. Like there's a level of, at least with the people that I tend to work with now, most have at least, you know, around like 10 years of experience in what they do. They tend to be like mid-career and tend to not just be the ones doing the thing, but the ones like leading on how it should be done. And that is usually what people look for with a consultant. Like usually companies are saying, like bring some level of expertise that we don't already have um, and help us see this differently, help us, you know, plan for this and even maybe train our people who are here to implement it. But you're like the catalyst for it. And, you know, you bring the strategy to the conversation. Got it. That, yeah, that feels more aligned with what I imagined that word to be. <laughs> word. And especially in the online world, like what? What are y'all even doing? I know, and they ever they get like snatched up and used like by everyone so quick. Like everybody's like you know like like normalized right now. Like everything is normalized. <laughs> Which I was like, I get this is a good term, but right now I'm like, please, like, can we slow down? Like normalize eating this. Normalize speaking out. Like, I'm like, no, it is a good thing, but like right now, I everything I read says normalize. <laughs> So normalized trauma. Everything's normalized. <laughs> Everything's trauma. Everything's normalized. Everything. Might, I, don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption from this week's sponsor, Blissoma. I am so excited to tell you guys about this brand. They offer healthy, sustainable personal care products that are intelligently designed and deeply supportive of the human body and help address and improve complex skin challenges in a holistic way. Skin care products. But these are the most legit. You guys, I went clean and green and all natural with my skincare products over 10 years ago. And it made a great difference in my skin. But it also, over the years, more and more brands have come out, which is amazing. But it's also gotten more and more confusing to figure out what is being like greenwashed, what even is all natural, and what they're just like, you know, putting that branding on. This brand is legit. And I've been using it for weeks now, and I really, truly see a change in my skin. Like, I've never seen anything happen like this in my skin so fast. I'm not like a skin person, but I look in the mirror and I'm like, wow, my pores really got smaller. Wow, my skin really is brighter. Wow. <laughs> like, I am in shock daily. I love, love, love this brand. Go check them out. Um, they are really supportive. Again, they want you to make sure that you're buying products that actually work for your skin. So they are interactive with the customer. Go to blissoma.com. The link will be in the show notes. And they've given me a code, claim it. That's it. Use claim it. Forget 20% off all facial serums and oils. I'm using Aura. 
the brightening serum and restore the facial oil along with some other products of theirs. And seriously, I'm not, you know me, I'm not bullshitting you. I am obsessed with this brand and I'm so excited to introduce it to you guys. So please go check it out and feel free to DM me, but probably DM me. They, they know more than they know more than me, but I'm happy to let you know what I'm using in my experience. All right, let's get back to the episode. Well, getting back to the your career, mm-hmm. started with consulting, mm-hmm. then went the lawyer path. Yeah. Is that right? You started with consulting. Started with consulting, then went to graduate school, started in a PhD program, dropped out after one year because I was like, no. <laughs> Did a kind of a ballsy thing so that when I and applied to the PhD program. I had applied to other schools. I did the, I learned my lesson and applied to many schools instead of just the one. And I really, it was a great program, but it was very much set up to prepare you for like the ivory tower and being a professor, but not to really use scholarships that affected policy or connected to communities. It was like, let's just do research and talk to each other, you know. Um, with our PhDs. And I was like, oh, that's what this is. I didn't realize. <laughs> so the year, so I had applied to a number of schools and I called, but I, you know, said no to the schools I didn't go to. And I was in Tennessee at Vanderbilt. And again, no shade to Vanderbilt, great school, just wasn't for me. <laughs> and I called Columbia, which is what the other school that I had gotten into. And I was like, hi. So I rejected your offer to come last year. And I just, I'm just curious, you know, can I come? And they were like, sure. Aaron Palace, who ended up being my advisor, was like, sure, sure, you can come. Which I don't even know why I thought that was a reasonable question to ask, but I did it. And they said, yes, I didn't have to reapply. I moved to New York that summer. I met my husband like a month and a half later. We've been together ever since. <laughs> So you, did you finish the PhD there? No, I didn't. No. I did a year and then I transferred to Columbia. Okay. Yeah, finished grad school there. I just did a year. But so when you started the the program at Vanderbilt, did you do a whole year? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you were like, okay, your program isn't for me. Tried Columbia, did a whole year there, and then still were like... No, and I did at Columbia and graduated. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started... My PhD program at Vanderbilt was there for like a summer and a year and did some really like good research during that time period, but it just like wasn't a fit. I tried to make it work. It just wasn't working. And that's when I called Columbia up and said, hey, I applied to you guys a year ago. I said, no, I want to say yes now. Can I come? And so then I did, went to Columbia and then finished graduate school there. Got it. I went to law school a couple years later. And then after law school, you start, yeah, we already talked about that. So where did you go after the law legal work? Yeah, so. Or what made you ready for a change? Yeah, I kind of always knew that I would like bridge the legal and the social justice work. I knew it would be around education. Um, And so I worked at one, two, three, like two large law firms, one smaller law firm. I did like my own law practice for a while. And then I, while I was at one of the law firms, one of my mentors, she wasn't like, she didn't know she was my mentor. We never met, <laughs> but I had read a lot of her work and just like really admired her. And I was in, I was at law school in Berkeley and 
looked up and like there was a there was this kid <laughs> who was starting in a class below me. I think he was two years below me, and he had the same last name of the woman whose work I had been reading. And I was like, "You're Sean Darling Hammond, like Linda Darling Hammond's son." And he was like, "Yeah," <laughs> and like no one else kind of knew who he was. Anyway, we we became really good friends, not for that reason, but he was just a lovely person. And at his graduation party, I met her, we were talking, and I was working at a large law firm at the time, and she had the idea to start this national education think tank and said, like, if she's like, wow, you have a, a master's in ed policy and a law degree, like, that's exactly what, and you're a writer, I'm really looking to combine those three things, communication, policy, and, you know, uh, and law, you know. I'm starting this new thing when it's up, like, let's stay in touch. <laughs> and so anyway, she ultimately ended up starting it. Um, I left the firm to join her and the headquarters was in Palo Alto. So I worked out of there. Soon after, found out I was pregnant with twins. <laughs> and so then moved to the D.C. office. So we had two offices, one in Cali, one in D.C. And so total, I was there for five years like working on the team, doing research and policy analysis around education issues, federal level, local level, state level, which essentially means like helping policymakers and people who make the laws make better decisions that are actually grounded in research and not just their like bullshit opinions <laughs> that, you know, really impact kids and have an equity perspective. So a lot of times laws are put in place just for all kids and not recognizing the differences and then the levels of resources that are aren't provided in certain communities because of systemic racism. And so what we did was try to advance policies and help educate policymakers on ways that they can make better decisions. So did that for five years, shifted from being full-time with them into being, being a consultant because I wanted to, we were kind of in a place where we were deciding where we wanted to be like permanently with the kids and landed on Atlanta ultimately. But for me, you know, because I had already done consulting for the first six to seven years of my career, and then throughout my career over the past like 17 years, I've done consulting on the side, I've done it part-time, I've done it full-time. For me, it's always been a tool and a skill set to really navigate life and sort of create work and do work in a way that works for my life in that particular season. Um, and I've just always wanted that for other people who felt really stuck in just the only option available to them, which was, you know, let me just work this nine to five job. But there are many other ways to, to make money and to use your skills. And so, you know, that's why I created On Your Expertise to help people do that. So is that when you guys, when you guys moved to Atlanta to have that home base that you were wanting for your, your own family with your kids? Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah, like you, I'm assuming, yes, kept your, con your own consultant work done. And then that also then was just inspiring you mm -hmm. to start this for other people. But yeah, I think that that's so amazing because you're right. Nine to five doesn't work for everybody, but I think that many people either think nine to five, I work for somebody or like I have to be an entrepreneur 
and do like it all on my own and hire people to work for me or like, you know, be an entrepreneur, a small entrepreneur or a big entrepreneur. But like that, this idea to be a consultant is that they still somewhat work for themselves and can create some freedom, but they are being employed by these larger corporations and or smaller, whatever, all sorts of different companies around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all about like the third way. I'm always pretty like skeptical and curious when I only see two options presented. And I'm like, there has to be another way. And, you know, I just kind of found my way into this by just saying like, what do I need right now? And, you know, I wasn't expecting to have twins. <laughs> And so that changed everything. Really, honestly, having a child changed everything. Yeah. Having two at one time really changed, like, our perspective. We were in Berkeley being, you know, hipster newlyweds. And we were were in Oakland at the time, actually. And that's super cute when it's just the two of you. But then when you're, like, knocked up (laughs) with two kids on the way in a one-bedroom condo, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. When the cost of living in Berkeley, I don't know, is what for a family of four. So we just, to know that I could pick up and make different choices and say like, okay, like what's best for our family right now? What, I still want to continue to do this work that I care about. Like, how can I do it differently? And to have an organization that trusted me to say like, yeah, of course you can do this as a consultant. You've been a consultant before. Like, we know that you do good work. Um, so I just really think it can be, it can open you up to a range of options that are available, but like feel like you're more aware that they're available and you're more able to seize them like when you know the ins and outs of how to work for yourself. And it's not complicated. It's just many people haven't done it. Like you just, if you haven't worked for yourself, you just don't necessarily know how to do it. And you can certainly learn it on your own. It's just that people kind of want some support doing it. They you know, work with me. Yeah. Well, cause I make up, are you then teaching them? Cause if I was like wanting to go that way or try it out, it would, I think one of my biggest questions would be like, how do I reach, who do I reach out to and how, like how to present myself and my services. And also I think that many people can struggle with presenting themselves. Like even if they know how great they are and what they've done or whatever, like that presenting of like, hi, you want to hire me because of this, like that, you know, like writing the list and the numbers and the flashy stuff that is yours in your heart. And that's, I'm guessing like your own, your expertise is a big part of that, that people wanted to be like, well, yes, hire me because I'm this, but then can like be like, well, I mean, yeah, I'm good at what I do. I worked at this place. (laughs) Keep that same energy you have, you know, in these interviews, like keep that energy when you're doing it for yourself. Because here's the thing, and like this is the secret, like radical idea <laughs> behind all of this. I think that like I, I'm literal when I say own your expertise. Like I think that we should own that. And I think that the way that we work oftentimes makes us feel like we're owned by our companies and we're owned by like just the way the workplace is set up, but we aren't. And I think this moment is kind of making it clear for those who didn't know, the companies who didn't know or appreciate it, that the real value is your people and what they do, what they bring to the company. Like that's the real value. And they need to get it together <laughs> like and compensate people appropriately and provide the support needed for people to be able to do their work well and to 
you know, have some semblance of work-life balance, which I have complicated thoughts about the idea of balance, but to at least honor the full humanity of the people who are actually the greatest contribution to the organization. And so part of it is like a mindset shift of realizing like, yeah, like all this experience you've gotten, that's yours. Like that's yours. <laughs> and you get to decide how and when you're going to use it and what it's worth. And obviously like you decide what it's worth in conversation with the market and what they're willing to pay for it. But we kind of go a little like, people haven't even gotten to the point of seeing their worth enough. So we go like really far <laughs> to the side and get really clear on like, how do I actually package and price this? One of the first, no, I think it's the, no, the first module actually of our program is really getting clear on how you're going to plan your pivot, whether you're fully going into consulting or picking it up on the side. I'm also a Virgo. So there's a lot, <laughs> there are a lot of, there's a lot of plans in this. I'm both like about the freedom and do your own thing. So that's all the planets in Libra, but then the Virgo comes in and it's like, all right, how are we going to make this happen? Well, I think that's necessary. Yeah. Cause freedom is exciting, but also it can be so like elusive that again, people won't make a choice or a change of direction. So like, yeah, like a lot of people need to see some solid plan options to like go with and make their own. But yeah, like Freedom is exciting and also scary in many ways. Right. Well, seriously. And like, have it be, I've worked really hard to make the environment and the experience of the program a safe container where people aren't feeling that opposition that you articulated, right? Like employee or entrepreneur, like I'm not really serious about either one if I don't go fully in that direction. And that's just like, always continue to call bullshit on that. I feel like I write a post about that every week because that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But part of that comes from the sense of like our jobs own us. Like we really feel that way. <laughs> and so people feel like I'm not fully committed to my job if I'm considering bringing in revenue through consulting or I'm not really an entrepreneur if I'm still in my job. And it's like, can there be another way to think about our and our personhood and what like us being the center of it and choosing to bring it to the marketplace either through a job or through consulting or just like not participate for a while <laughs> like whatever you choose to do but like can we can we move the center I think a lot of the moment that we're in right now is like rethinking power and rethinking control and rethinking a lot of people have resistance to power because of how it's played out for them but like, what would it actually mean to center yourself? And for some people that probably feel selfish, like to center yourself in your career decisions. Like, what if you actually allowed yourself to think about what makes the most sense for me right now, given my life, given my desires, given my goals, and like, what would it look like to try to do that? I just, I think we should ask those questions more. No, totally. That's what I was going to say when you're saying, you know, like what the, the things that play out like, oh, but if I, yeah, if I only do consulting part time, then that means I don't fully believe in myself and like those sorts of like, usually those aren't even your own thoughts. Those are just what you're picking up from what 
people are spinning at you, the hot entrepreneur coach or whatever, that's like, no, you have to fully commit. You have to do this, whatever. And then the other person, like, it's just where we get so many, we're so, it's, we're so lucky to have so many resources, but people then get stuck on these shoulds. Well, I should do this. I should do that. And what is that? We're just, we're so often thinking about what will other people think about us when it's like, well, what do you think about you? What are other going to be blah, 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 blah. What does that mean? All, if I do this and do that, but it's like, you're not actually usually asking yourself. It's usually all the questioning is coming from what will other people tell me? Or this person says I should do this. This person says I shouldn't do this. I'm writing my first book right now about, it's actually working titles, F the shoulds, do the once because, but it's actually like tuning in and eliminating the word should from your life. I did it in 2008 when my father passed away. And anytime the word comes up, I, I replace it with want. So it makes me question everything I'm thinking and saying, like, what should I do? What do I want to do? What should I eat today? What do I want to eat today? Should I say yes to this project? Do I want to make, cause it's just like, it really just slows down your mind and your process and brings everything back to you and allows you to get curious about what you're doing and thinking. Cause it's so much is just following these shoulds that we hear about or that we make up, we have to do. Yeah, it's cool. I was just talking to someone like a couple of hours ago, a student who will be in the program, the cohort, about feeling like, like thinking, speaking of shoulds, like she should have certain credentials before corporations are going to take her seriously as a consultant. And so we walked through that in I never, you know, being a coach, I never, we get to the answer together. Really, you get to the answer (laughs) by us walking through it. And we walk through, you know, like, have you seen that to be true? Like, have you seen that to be true in your industry? And I think that there needs to be a certain level of like, of course, like clear eyed, eyes wide open, like actually look around and see if that's the case. Also notice when you're creating a story about what you think is the case, whether it's a story that you're creating or a story you picked up from other people. And, you know, it is one thing if you look at your industry and you do see that a certain credential is standard. That wasn't the case here. It's another thing if you're making that the standard based on, again, like like you said, stories that people are telling or stories that you're telling yourself. We're good at complicating things. Oh, yes. <laughs> make everything so much harder than it needs to be. I was going to get to the questions I ask everybody, but I feel like, yeah, I want to ask you something else about what's another, like one of the biggest struggles that you see with people like that are coming to do this program and that like keeps them from owning their expertise or struggle with it. Mm. Or just something in general you want to like, feel like move to share with people listening. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just keeping things light. Internalized white supremacy has <laughs> done a number on quite a few people. Um, and specifically, so there's this, I'm blanking right now on the name of the researchers who have this whole framework for how internalized white supremacy shows up in organizations. And one of the ways is, there are a number of ways. One of them is like a sense of urgency about everything um, that kind of rushes you past the opportunity to make inclusive and thoughtful and like deep decisions. And usually rushing 
and urgency, which is a marketing tactic that many people use, causes you to default to the norm. And a lot of times the norm, because it's just like, it's more comfortable. Like people are used to the thing. It's harder to change or to do something different or to include other people when you're in a hurry, right? So, um, and, and so that can happen in organizations. It can also happen when people are experiencing a sense of urgency, let's say with buying something. And then they default to sort of internalize our dynamics. And so like, I'm in a rush, I'm in a hurry. The timer's going off. I'm being told like, if I don't do this now, I won't have that opportunity. Well, this person seems like wealthy and smart and like attractive. Like maybe they know what's best for me and I don't. And you don't really articulate that, but you kind of default to the norm, which is often like internalized white supremacy. So anyway, again, keeping things light. But I see that that happens often, like those notions of sort of another element of internalized white supremacy is perfectionism. Um, this idea that you just like have to be perfect before you do anything. And, you know, in the whole personal development culture, you've seen versions, people saying like, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to get going and all of that. And that's cute. And there, we also have to realize, so I'm, I'm a fan of assessing like when you are personally tripping yourself up, but also seeing, honoring and naming when that trip up is happening because of like broader systemic issues. And it's not just you and it's not just personal, right? So there's this thing in Black culture where for whatever reason, I don't know that anyone ever told me this, but there's an idea that you have to be like, twice as good and work twice as hard and like all that, right? I I would like to know. <laughs> I I have heard I have heard black female friends of mine say that they yeah be- carry that belief and that that's how they yeah. have felt their entire life. Yeah, right? There's this like deeply embedded sense of overworking as like not even as like trying to be better, but you have to overwork to just be like average, which is based on a lot of internalized um, ideas about like what is good and what is the norm and where are we trying to go and like all of that, right? It's really from a deficit mindset. And so versus like saying, you know, I am enough, right? Like I'm I'm more than qualified, more than capable. It is an actual fact that Black women are the most educated demographic in of all demographics. Like that has been the case for like the past 10 years. If we're talking about like raw credentials, right? There are other ways of knowing and experience that should be valued. Black women in particular have led the growth in entrepreneurship. So all of the growth that we've seen recently and the, the Black woman demographic makes up the largest share of entrepreneurs in the U.S. So we just like, there's fact and then there's the stories and the narrative. And, you know, there's, it's a lot to untangle. <laughs> just wake up every day and move forward. So I think another, like, that is one of the big struggles that working twice as hard thing can lead to overwhelm and just working on it, like just doing too much. Like you just don't need to do all of that (laughs) to move forward in business. Like we can really have a streamlined, simple, clear approach and 
you can really trust yourself in this. Like you don't have to always default to the next webinar and the next ad or meme or like whatever people are telling you to do. Like you can trust yourself. Like here is a framework. Like this is just how you build a business and this is how you work for yourself. There are going to be a million and one decisions along the way. You got this. Like you got this. And you don't have there is to no perfect. be perfect. No one's asking that of you. Um, there is a perfect. And the best businesses are iterative and they're like learning as they go and tweaking and being responsive to the market. Like that's what you want. Apple puts out shitty phones all the time to wait to see how people use them and fix it. Like that's what they do. <laughs> like let's give ourselves some grace and like do the best we can and then get better until we die. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I'm I'm with you and that's how I've always been in the me trying to do my own business and do the things cuz it's easy and I feel like I feel like in many ways starting was easier than the more you know because now oh I'm doing this like now I see more I follow more people then it can get easier to get caught up in the shoulds oh you should run an online program this I should be doing that I should be doing this and this is how much whatever that it's again so I have to constantly coming back to trusting myself trusting what feels best to me listening to me even if top this person and that person are telling me so again like not to like close down completely and not take input and advice but always be coming back to how does that feel for me right now in this stage of my life and my business because yeah we're as humans evolving and especially with families and all of it we're always always evolving and I think we can get so stuck in this is the way to do things and then from here on out too all right. I love all that you shared there. And also I was making faces when you were sharing about the like black women entrepreneurs being like, more because I was again being like shaking my head, like annoyed with society and myself that like, I didn't know these things until the past month, a couple months ago when the explosion happened. And now that I'm following much more diverse people and that are inspiring and amazing to me that are now sharing these things, like these things were being shared. I just was not aware because that's not where my eyes were or whatever. And so now it's just like, I just hope we can all keep shifting our awareness. <laughs> no way. No way. I know. I know it all now. I was really paying attention for a week. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> and it's funny, like, I mean, you said this earlier too, right? This is not just like white people waking up. We're all waking up, right? I told like you were saying, my mom was creating a class with her colleagues at a historically black college and university, and there was some resistance from some people around it. Um, so, I mean, I think internalized racism and internalized anti-blackness is a thing even in black people, right? And so we have to be willing to see that, check it, acknowledge it. And I think we're all growing. Like, look, like you grew up in America, like you had a shitty... <laughs> He had a shitty education when it came to history. It is what it is. Like, we're all doing better, you know? Yeah, I just, it's got to keep, keep happening. Keep, keep mm -hmm. moving forward. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pull up a screen showing 
These are all phrases that go on keychains in my product line. Can you see it? I can. So I ask every guest to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which remind which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now and why, because I will be sending you the keychain. So which which phrase do you want to see every day? This is so awesome. I love this. Um oh, my eyes went straight to I choose joy. Oh, yay. Did I tell you my name means everlasting joy? You, you know what? I think you did when we first um, yeah. got connected. Uh, it went there. Um, my eyes went there because like, part of me doesn't want, doesn't want to pick that one. But, but Do you my, want me to pull them back up? No, no, no. no. I, I'm committing. I'm committing. Because some of like sometimes it feels a little spiritual bypassy to be like I choose joy in the midst of all of this. But again, me in the third way, right? Like I think we can both recognize what's happening, and then also make a choice to choose what joy looks like in that moment. And it's a really beautiful thing. Like I, I think the, I think the binary in always is always like a fallacy, and it's probably a bigger statement. <laughs> probably should say but I think that there's it's always like it feels more complicated than just like either this or that like what is that interesting space in between the two or or maybe it is binary and it's like okay how can we play with both and not have to feel the need to commit to either one I mean you see me doing that with the employee entrepreneur thing like I think you can be both um so I think we can both choose joy and be really clear-eyed about, you know, aspects of life that aren't joyful and that's like, that's all part of, that's all part of it, you know? Yeah, that's what I try to make clear in my messaging that I'm not trying to be about toxic positivity. And I've even noticed things I've shared in the past or like things I even have in my daily inspiration. Of. I'm like, okay, I can see where that could look like. But I'm in my mind always putting the sub, you know, but I try to always be clear of that. that I'm not all at all about like just see the glass half full or turn that smile up around. Or like, you know, I don't even like to call myself like about positivity or say like I'm a positive person. I feel that I'm like to be like, I'm very real, like a realist. I see what's going on. I feel things. I am having a hard day. This sucks. I can't believe whatever you're feeling that like I name that and to be, it's okay to be in the feelings and that it's best to name and feel the feelings. Cause that's how you can then get to joy or whatever it is you want to feel. But yeah, it's like that you can feel joy and also be grieving. You can feel joy and also be angry. You can feel joy and be upset that it's like, yeah, it doesn't have to feel or mean like I can't have joy because that means I'm dismissing everything that's terrible that's happening in the world or all the upsets that I'm feeling and I like I've been trying to especially in these last couple of months be I've there's a pose I've I think I've shared several times and different versions of it like you know you can feel sadness and grief and this and joy or like make space for like you you're allowed to still feel joy right now and that doesn't mean I like put it smaller like that doesn't mean that you know that you're wrong for feeling grief from that but yeah I think that we are rob we rob ourselves from joy a lot or if you're like how dare I have joy when so and so is suffering from this and that and like so to allow those questions to be then well how can I if I'm feeling like you know, how dare I have this? And like, then to let that move you into, well, what can I do? What can I do that would try to, you know, 
alleviate someone else's pain or joy and like that. But like you having joy is going to help more people and it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As you're talking, I realized like how I need that keychain because <laughs> I'm not often intentional about choosing joy, you know, like it, it happens, but I'm not choosing joy. And I think that that's really a great, it's a really great reminder. It makes me think about, you know, why is that? Like there are other kind of emotions and sensations that it just feels more like, like stress, for example. It's such a part of our culture. Like we don't even have to choose it. It's stress just, has been normalized. <laughs> Let's normalize joy. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's messed up. Like it's, it's going to cause me to think about Maybe I'll just journal on like, what are the kind, what are the emotions and feelings that I just, like I'm more intentional about and less intentional about and, you know, what can it look like to make some choices? So I like it. I like it. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of that, of joy, another question I ask everybody is what is something you do to raise your joy levels? Hmm. My boys are so yummy. I feel like this is like a typical parent thing to say, but like, they're just so, I don't know. This time has both been a lot of time with people. (laughs) And also just like, I don't know, just kind of cuddling them. They're very different. So they're like polar opposite twins in every single way. One looks like my mom, one looks like my dad, one is more like me personality-wise, one's more like my husband, which is very, very interesting. But so they have their just kind of being in with them in those moments and actually getting on the floor with them and playing with them and being in their world. That like one action of sitting on the floor with them, it just brings me so much joy for whatever reason. I for a moment see things from their perspective and I can feel and sense that they feel really seen and like I'm really present with them and they you know speaking of normalizing like we have more than normalized the fact that like mommy works (laughs) and like that's the thing my husband was a stay-at-home dad for the first three years so they like we've normalized the fact that dad you know it's all the there are no sort of gendered norms really around our household it's just kind of like we're the family we're the community this is what we do to run the Tinubu Ali household (laughs) and people contribute so um it's just been really that's been really interesting to see how that plays out but seeing things from their perspective and you know they I haven't experienced that thing of like, mommy works too much or whatever. They just kind of know like, that's just what we do. And like, like daddy works from home too. So that's what he does. And, um, but I do think that I can certainly tell a difference when I haven't really been present with them in a while. And like getting on the floor thing really does it for me. (laughs) Love that. Okay. I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So what is easiest for me is to blank. What is best for me is to. What is easiest for me, and this is like very current, 
because I'm like right now figuring out what this shift looks like for me. But what's easiest for me is to default to like calming down and like yoga and like being zen. But sometimes what's best for me and my nervous system is to like get under some weight and like push things and like throw things, not people, things and like really, you know, activate that part of my nervous system. And so I've been in an education about my nervous system and how it works for like the past like four years or so. And I'm finally coming around to realizing that for me, what movement is going to need to look like to bring some more, like to calibrate things is like a lot of like fire <laughs> and sweat and movement and strength. And so now I'm figuring out what that looks like. My husband's not now, but he was for like 20 years, exercise specialist and trainer. And so I'm, he's like, oh, now you want to <laughs> listen to me? <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. But I think that that's kind of a metaphor too for life, you know, for me at least. Um, I know I've gotten lots of messages over life, like despite my upbringing, despite all the great communities I've been in, we get certain messages from society that like being quiet and calming down and like kind of shrinking and being small and just letting the storm pass is how you make it through the other side and I think sometimes you just need to like be fire and like really shake things up so there's this beautiful poem by Nair Wahid I can't remember it right now but it's like and I don't want to butcher it so people look it up but it basically talks about like you can be water and you can be waves and you can be fire too and so I'm really trying to play with both aspects like both in my physical body and then also just in my way of approaching things and really recognizing and seeing when fire is needed in you know and like holding boundaries and like speaking up and uh you know speaking truth to power like all those things right when it's needed and then when what's needed is just to like quietly let the storm pass <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Response. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I, I definitely, yeah, I got a lot of fire in me. And so some, I do that. Like, yeah, I'm more like, mm, okay, this one is maybe one you need to pull back. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. I think, yeah, as we grow and evolve in life and our situations too, to like allow ourselves to, you know, this thing that I loved forever and that I do, like I still love, but I've, feel like I'm being drawn more here like whether that's a way you move your body and you know nurture yourself or what but like allowing yourself to be curious of about these other things and not just stuck in this is my thing <laughs> this is what I do <laughs> um all right the last question is uh, the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe that our feelings of being enough, of being successful, of being worthy, lovable, whatever it is, are not outside of us, out there somewhere. Once I have this job, once I, you know, meet this person in my dreams, have this much money in my bank account, then I will feel enough. Once this happens, then I'll feel joy that it's something that we have to claim for ourselves every day, sometimes every moment of the day. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? 
I am claiming that my like wiser, like maybe older self <laughs> is guiding me in in many things, and like it will be okay. Because oftentimes we look back and we realize at this point like it was okay. But I don't really do a lot of that in the moment moving forward, right? Like as I'm thinking about this was an important transition period for my boys into pre-K and like now it's not happening, you know, or like just in this entire transition period that we're in, I'm really claiming that wisdom and clarity and peace and just enjoy are mine now. and. I am doing my best with what I have and I will get to the other side and look behind myself and say, see, (laughs) we did it. And so trusting that in the right now moment is something that I'm working on and claiming. Yeah, I was about to say, claim. (laughs) Claim (laughs) Awesome. I love that. And I'm sure you're not alone in that. That's it's and it's it's so necessary and again it's like I think it can feel like well wait does that mean I'm ignoring or whatever by like saying but it's just not it's again it's seeing what is somehow okay this is what it is we are making it through this is all (laughs) this is not permanent also yeah yep awesome thank you so so much for sharing your well, not your entire life story, but a lot of it with us, your background, your passion, your thoughts and everything. You're so welcome. I love what you're doing. This is this is really great. And you're a really great interviewer. This is a great conversation. And um I hope that I hope that your listeners got something out of it. All right. I hope you guys really love that conversation with Titi Layo. I sure loved learning about her, her journey, and the work that she's doing. For full show notes, her links, what we mention, go to yourdryologist.com slash podcast, and you'll find all the episodes there. You can find her at titilayo and at ownyourexpertise.co for all things me, yourdryologist.com, and I'm at yourdryologist on social media. And I love and my guests love hearing from you. So feel free to DM us. Please share the episodes. Let us know what you're listening to, why, what parts stood out to you. Also, um, thank you. Thank you for being here and listening. I really do appreciate it. It's one of my favorite things to do to get to talk to people and to get into these conversations. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you could leave a review where you listen, and I will send you a thank you note for that. So leave a review, screenshot it. You can even screenshot it before you hit send or enter whatever, because it might take a little while to show up. Screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And I will send you a gift from my product line, just like I have every guest pull a keychain. You could, I could send you a keychain, magnet, art print. I have mugs. I have the affirmation deck. I've got all sorts of products in my shop to empower you, to claim it, to own your awesome, to show up for your life. Because we really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't. You don't know. So, you know, feel your feelings. Don't you have to push yourself out of the hard times, but also claim your life. Claim your joy. 
claim your worth. So, um, yeah, please leave me a review. <laughs> Make sure to get the Own Your Awesome app in the app stores. If you have that too, I'd really love for you to leave a review in that app store. Reviews matter not just to me, but they help things become more found, discoverable to reach more people. So you could have an impact on my words, conversations, impacting more people simply by leaving a review and sharing them. You are influential, even if you are not an influencer. If you know one person and they start listening, get the app, buy something because of you, you have the power to influence people. So also, don't forget that and make yourself smaller than you are. If you are here, then you have the ability to influence somebody just from speaking from your heart and sharing what's there. And that's how I live. Honestly, yeah, we got to get numbers. I have to have numbers to get a book deal. I have to have numbers for my podcast to become searchable for people to say yes. But a lot of people actually don't even care about my numbers that come on my podcast. So that's cool. So numbers do matter, but they also don't. Like, I feel good if one person likes a post, if one person leaves a comment or shares. I've done what my goal in life is. If one single person likes something. So if you're out there getting stuck on numbers, psh, don't worry about the numbers. Worry about what's in your heart <laughs> and show up for it. You have the power to make an impact and you likely are making a bigger impact than you even know because people don't tell us. They don't even tell us. So tell me. <laughs> no, I would love to hear from you, but. Yeah, I hope that gave you a little pep talk as well, even though I was like asking you for feedback and comments. I believe I'm making a difference whether I get a reply, a comment, a DM or not. So when I get stuck in my head of I'm not doing enough, nobody cares, I'm not worthy, nobody wants to hear what I have to say, I flip that script and show up for who it is that I am and what I want my impact to be in the world. And you have the power to do that too. All right. So that's my final, that's a little sermon for you. <laughs> At the end of today's podcast, let's leave it with what are you claiming? What are you claiming right now? Claim that you have the power to influence people. Claim that you make a difference. Claim your worth. What are you claiming? All right. Come find me on social media. I'm at your geologist. <laughs>